I don't know. If you see the moral dichotomy that exists within our culture the way that I do, but frankly, it's been on stark display as of late. For the last 30, 40 years, we have lived in America in a relativistic society, a society that frankly frowns upon any person who dare make an absolute moral judgment. Anytime a Christian leader boldly spoke out against the blatant immorality or the dangerous trends within politics or media or, or the Hollywood community, we were quickly silenced by an avalanche of accusations of, of being judgmental or bigoted, intolerant, etc., etc., etc. Dare to speak about the societal dangers of pornography and you were promptly ousted from the town square. The irony is how very quickly, almost rapidly, this has all changed. And I don't know if you've seen it. I'll give you an example. Just 20 years ago, the mob told us that no one had the right to judge what two consenting adults did in the privacy of the Oval Office. Then, last June, the same group celebrated the death of porn king Hugh Hefner. But today... This same choir has zero problems attempting to destroy a president over an alleged affair with a porn star that happened some 10 years ago. See the moral dichotomy? Kind of bizarre. A, a tune has changed. You know, a man that everyone with a brain knew was a womanizer, like a lot of the presidents before him, was elected for his policy ideas and not his moral standing by none other than whom? Christians. You think we would have been celebrated as finally being progressive? For me, the irony of all ironies is Jimmy Kimmel lecturing anyone about morality when he came to fame via The Man Show. Google it. Not only is the moral outrage seemingly selective, but the approach, it's brutal, isn't it? It's brutal. Today, the same accusation that Christians are judgmental and unloving, you know that same accusation can today be levied at the media punditry. I'll give you another example. According to a recent study, an astounding 50% of American adults have sexted and or presently contain compromising sexual content on their phones. Let me say that again. 50%. 50%. What's even crazier is that 16% have actually sent sexual content to a total stranger. And while I'm sure that you have seen news story after news story defending people's privacy, the right to exchange sexual content without fearing a prejudice. You've probably not seen journalistic presentations of the moral dangers of sexting and how such a behavior can destroy a marriage or a life. Well, you probably haven't heard any of that unless it just so happens 
that the man who's sexting pictures, that his pictures are leaked online, and he has the last name Wiener, that he goes by an alias, Carlos Danger, and in addition to being politically active in New York, just so happened to be married to the presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's most trusted advisor, a woman by the name of Huma Abedin. If you remember, the Anthony Weiner scandal had two phases to it. Though in May of 2017, Mr. Weiner ended up pleading, it's his name, I'm just reading his name. <laughs> Though in May of 2017, Mr. Weiner ended up pleading guilty to sending an obscene image to a minor, which landed him in jail for 21 months. The story of Anthony Weiner, <laughs> let me say that again. The story of Anthony Weiner originally broke back in June. The, the teenager sitting on the front row was a bad idea. His story broke originally in June of 2011, forced him to resign from Congress. Photos made the rounds across the internet. And the coverage, if you'll recall, was savage. From Twitter, the major news networks, talk radio. I mean, the news cycle dominated. This particular story was dominated. And don't get me wrong, because of the high-profile nature of the people involved, I'm not saying that the story wasn't newsworthy. It was. It absolutely was. But what really irritated me was the glee in which the story was reported by virtually everyone in what's supposed to be an amoral media. Personally, I was struck by the fact that there was absolutely zero public concern for the embarrassment his actions would cause his wife, would later cause his young son when he Googles his last name, the destruction of his marriage, didn't hear any concern for that, or, or even just compassion for the severe damage his sexual proclivity was inflicting on his life. I mean, undoubtedly, this man had a serious problem. Was there compassion? Not at all. You know, it grieves me that not only has our nightly newscast come to look more like an episode of Jerry Springer than serious journalism, but the truth, and my point this morning, is that compassion has gone out of style. Now, before we become indignant, I'm afraid to say the institutional church can be equally ferocious and in many ways operate in the same dichotomy. Aside from the more public spectacles that occur when a high-profile pastor is exposed for having some type of moral failure, I've personally seen a local assembly of, of a church be equally merciless. Like how heavy-handed the church can be to those who've been divorced or are presently struggling in a failing marriage. Like how quickly the church castigates those who fall into sexual sin or are struggling with the taboo of same-sex attraction. How fast the church judges a woman who's had an abortion or the single mom who's had a child out of wedlock. How immediate the church can be in blaming parents whose children have gone wayward 
or how the church openly ostracizes those within her ranks who fail to conform to a version of their orthodoxy. How dare a Christian drink or vote Democrat or watch Game of Thrones? The reality is that there tends to be very little difference in how the church handles our own Carlos dangers. It's a sad indictment. But Christians, I have found, are one of the few groups of people who tend to eat their wounded. Today, how many people are no longer in our ranks because the church took them out and executed them? Or how many are no longer serving in ministry because the church lynched them in the public square and now refuses to give them a second chance? How many refugees sit outside the walls of churches today because we've built up walls to keep out the diseased? Could it be that the American church hasn't really faced open persecution from the enemy because we're doing a good enough job on our own slaughtering the sheep? As if the wolf has no need to pick off the weak because we're enjoying lamb chops? Like, let me be real for a minute. The truth is that many of you have likely stumbled into the doors of our church because you were ushered out the doors of another. Now, that's not to say that you were maybe asked to leave or forced to leave. But if you were honest, you knew it was a time for a change because it became abundantly clear you were no longer welcomed where you were. Because of your DUI, or the fact that you got divorced, or committed adultery, or had a child out of wedlock, or smoked cigarettes, or hookah, or challenged the doctrinal norms, or heaven forbid say something dumb on Facebook, which is filled with nothing but dumb things, you knew just deep down that beyond the chances of ever like getting involved in a ministry role, you would always be in that church struggling with a stigma you'd never be able to escape. It's almost as though every time you went to church, you felt like people saw you as Pigpen from Charlie Brown. This cloud of controversy following you everywhere you went. Now it's with these things in mind that this morning we're going to examine what I believe to be one of the most fascinating stories, not just in in the entire book of Genesis, but the entire Bible. And I find it fascinating because it addresses this very topic of how we as a church, as Christians, are called to handle a person in our tent who's made a mistake. Now, as far as our approach to the text this morning, we're going to first unpack what exactly happened before we look at two very different reactions to what happened. Genesis chapter 9, let's begin with verse 18. We're going to read the whole story in its entirety. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, 
laid it on both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Well, Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, our story here begins with a very interesting scene. We're told, very simple, Noah planted a vineyard, drank of the wine, and was drunk. And literally, the word drunk means drunk. He was intoxicated. Now, now understand up front, regardless of your theological position of alcohol, we can all agree that there is a clear and undeniable prohibition against drunkenness in the scriptures. Getting sloshed is wrong. Getting hammered or blowing it up, it's indefensible, biblically. It's a sin. It's wrong. Not a good thing. So there's no question up front that Noah here, by getting drunk, made a mistake. That said, the purpose of this story and the reason that this story is included in the Genesis record really has absolutely nothing to do with what Noah did and instead has everything to do with what was done to Noah. The purpose of the story, from a macro sense, is to explain for us why it was that Canaan ends up being cursed and Shem and Japheth end up being blessed. Notice what happened after Noah drank of the wine and was drunk. We're told he became uncovered in his tent. Now, in the original language, a better translation for this phrase, become uncovered, would be to be uncovered. There's an activeness to it. Now, though the text doesn't specifically say how the uncovering occurred, it would appear from Noah's reaction upon awakening that the uncovering wasn't accidental. Now, consider that when Noah awoke from his wine, according to the text, and knew what his younger son had done to him, what does he do? He immediately cursed not Ham, but instead Ham's son, Canaan. Now, in order to know what had been done to him, it's important we first determine the identity of this younger son. In the Hebrew, this phrase translated younger son is ben katan. Like the phrase, it's often translated in Scripture as younger. It literally means small. If you take into account that Ham was not the younger son, ironically, but was instead the middle son of Noah. They were always in order on purpose, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and that it's likely Canaan was Noah's first grandchild. He's the first one mentioned. It's likely that upon awakening from his drunken slumber, Noah was keenly aware of what Canaan, not Ham, but what Canaan 
had done to him. While there is no doubt Ham failed to handle the situation in an appropriate way, and we'll get to that in a minute. The implications, though, of Canaan being cursed by Noah instead of his father Ham implies that that young man was the instigator of the initial uncovering of the grandfather. Canaan entered the tent while his grandfather was hammered and did something. And don't think it was like an innocent fun or he was playing a joke. Like Noah's reaction is severe, isn't it? It's swift. Like, it means that something occurred nefarious, even perverse. And and the key clue to this point is the use of two words. Not an accident that we have the words uncovering and the word nakedness. Now, keep in mind that whatever happened to Noah, he was immediately aware of when he woke. Now, in describing the wickedness of incestual perversions in the law. God would say this in Leviticus 18. He said, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. And then there's judgments that come as a result. Once again, the point of this passage is designed to explain to us that something happened to Noah in this state of drunkenness that was so wicked he would immediately curse his grandson Canaan and all of his subsequent generations. That's heavy-handed. Sadly, upon discovering what happened to Noah, the text then informs us that Canaan's father Ham also acts in a deplorable and shameful way. We read, quote, And Ham saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Now that seems to be innocent, but this word saw in the Hebrew, it implies that Ham stood there in the tent gawking or staring at his father before then going out and telling his brothers. Additionally, this word told in the Hebrew doesn't mean that Ham informed Shem and Japheth, but rather he told them with a measure of delight and glee and a measure of hilarity. In a sense, instead of reprimanding his son Canaan and immediately caring for his father Noah, what does Ham do? Ham decides to make fun of his father's nakedness. This situation and Canaan's behavior was something he found funny. Honestly, I think Noah gets a bad rap for this story. Like I've heard people describe Noah based on this text in all types of condescending ways. I've heard people make the case that alcohol tarnished Noah's witness and his life of obedience, that this was the one lasting stain on his rather perfect record. And yet I honestly don't believe the way this story ends up being portrayed is all that fair to Noah. Like all the passage tells us, right? Noah was a farmer, planted a vineyard, and drank too much. Then the story immediately transitions to how he was subsequently taken advantage of. 
while it's true, that many use this story to emphasize how wrong Noah was by getting drunk. Getting drunk in his tent. You know, those same pastors overlook the reality that the text, you notice what's not included? The text, which, by the way, aside from the commentary of the text, the text itself is divinely inspired. So the text, most interestingly, doesn't refer to Noah's behavior as being wicked, does it? The text doesn't reprimand Noah at all, nor does it classify any of his activities as being sinful. The truth is that Noah, even in light of what he did here, still possessed the moral authority to do what when he woke up? He had the moral authority to still bless and curse his sons. It's true, Noah made a mistake. And, and for the record, I can't emphasize it enough. Nothing good results when you find yourself DEFCON 1. We are called to be sober-minded. The Bible says that. However, it should be pointed out that in Genesis chapter 6, which is a few hundred years before this event, we're told, quote, Noah was a righteous man, perfect in his generation and walked with God. What shouldn't be overlooked, and few pastors mention this, is that even in light of Noah's lapse in judgment, God's grace in Noah's life remained unshakable. God's favor in Noah's life, immovable. His pleasure in Noah, sure. And Noah's righteousness, secure. In spite of his mistake in the eyes of God. In his commentary on Noah in this situation, C.H. McIntosh, this is what he writes, quote, Divine grace had covered all his sins and clothed his person with a spotless robe of righteousness. Though Noah exposed his nakedness, God did not see it. For he looks not at him in the weakness of his own condition, but in the full power of divine and everlasting righteousness. That's incredible. Like, I want you to know this morning that if you're a follower of Jesus, and this past week you've totally stepped in it, you've blown it, you acted like a jerk, far from Christ-like, it's okay. It's all right. God is not ashamed of you. As a matter of fact, he's not even disappointed in you. The truth is that when God looks at you right now, in spite of what you've done, you know what he sees? He sees Jesus' righteousness still covering you. That means it's okay. Like, never forget this amazing reality. God's grace exists primarily because you're a moron. Like God's grace exists because you're insufficient. You see, when you blow it, when you step in it, you know all you've actually done is demonstrate the unchanging truth that you're in desperate need of more of Jesus? Not a bad thing to admit. The question isn't how God sees a person who's failed. The question 
is how are we going to see them? And that's what makes this story deeply applicable. What made Ham's actions so egregious was that in the moment, he wasn't seeing his father Noah the way that God did. Ham handled the situation poorly because he saw his father's nakedness rather than looking beyond to see his father's righteousness. Ham's focus was off because it it centered on Noah's shortcomings instead of his right standing. And as a result, the way that Ham handled this situation was off because it wasn't the way God would have. Like, understand, it's impossible for any one of us or the church at large to handle those who've made a mistake in our tent if we're not first willing to look beyond their nakedness and see them the way Jesus does, the way that God does. You see, in order to to handle a person in a godly way, we must be willing to look beyond a person's shame and remember that they are bought with the blood of Christ and righteous before God in Jesus. You know, in contrast to Ham's approach, look at how Shem and Japheth deal with the situation. Not only do they refuse to join in, in Ham's ridicule and mockery of their dad, but we're told, quote, they took a garment, right, and they laid it between their shoulders. And then they entered the tent going backwards. And they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were told turned away so as that they would not see their father's nakedness. See, Shem and Japheth refused to gloat or judge their father's situation. Instead, they chose to lovingly cover the nakedness of dear old dad. This doesn't mean that they were willingly ignorant of what had happened. It doesn't mean that they were turning a blind eye. Instead, what's being described here are two sons who decide to handle their down-to-the-dumps dad with grace, with love. Because Shem and Japheth refused to see their father in any other way than the way that God saw their father. Notice how they handled the situation. Since Noah was covered by the righteousness of God, what do they do practically? They go in, And they return their hung-out-to-dry father to a place of covering. You know how interesting that in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, as as the beloved apostle is writing to the church, final exhortations, this is what he says. He says, and above all, above everything, of all my instruction, have fervent love. For one another. And then Peter quotes from Proverbs 10, verse 12, writing, For love will cover a multitude of sins. Friend, this is what grace does. Because grace fundamentally exists in the presence of failure, grace will always seek to cover the sins of another. Keep in mind, this idea of covering, it's in direct contrast to exposing, right? 
or, or laying bare. We might say the opposite of covering would be to hang out someone to dry or like Ham, to place a person's shame and shortcomings on display for all to see. I hope you know that how you handle someone else's shame reveals a lot about your own heart. Let me ask you, how do you handle the knowledge of another person's sin? Do you tell others? Do you gossip about it? Jump on Facebook? Do you inwardly gloat? I knew I was better than them. Do you delight in their failure? Does another person's shortcoming stir within you a greater sense of moral superiority? Do you stand in judgment? Or by grace? And the same way that Jesus handled you and your sin, do you seek to cover them? Do you seek restoration to restore them to a right position? In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 3, Paul would exhort the brethren that if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Here's why it's so important that you seek to cover another especially when that person doesn't deserve it. And note, Noah was asleep the entire time, right? He had no role in the process. The reason that you should cover those who don't deserve it is that Jesus covered your sins when you did nothing to deserve it. The idea of covering sin, you know that that is at the core of the heart and greater mission of Jesus? In Romans 4, verses 5 and 8, Paul writes, But to him who believes on Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man in whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works. And then Paul quotes Psalms 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And impute means to take into account. And to this point, I have found, and maybe you can relate, that it is, so very, it is so very hard to walk in the newness of life that Jesus died to provide when there are people around you constantly reminding you of the old man, of who you were. People who are so quick to remind you of your, of your shortcomings, of your mistakes, of how far you still need to go. So quick to hold your past over your future. Sad to say, this is often the very reason people who stumble are Carlos dangers, quickly leave a church. They need a fresh start. And personally, as a pastor, I find that to be terrible and tragic. I pray that Calvary 316 our church, is a community of believers who don't stand in judgment of one another, but instead use such instances to cover by encouraging the fallen to walk, to return, to enjoy the newness of life they've already been given. To come back to a cross, 
and a Savior who's not disappointed, but still sufficient. I pray that our church is more interested in seeing each other not as we once were, sinners, but as people Christ is making us into. That we would see each other not in our nakedness, but that we're forgiven. That we've been redeemed by Christ and his sacrifice, covered by his blood, made new in his spirit. I pray that we're a church who even when we stumble and fall, and it's a win, because you're going to, that you have a community of believers around you that will lovingly cover and deeply care. Consider that because of Ham's attitude to his father's failing, Canaan gets cursed and his subsequent generations are cursed, while Shem and Japheth, because of the way they handled things, receive a blessing. You know, on a side note, I think that when a church grows legalistic, when a church forgets to see people the way that God sees them, God removes his blessing and replaces it with a curse. Oh, those churches are so quick to die. Shem and Ham, though, in contrast, because of the grace they were willing to demonstrate, they were blessed because they modeled the heart of God. Now, I can hear some of you thinking, Zach, what are you saying? Are you saying we should turn a blind eye to sin? Sin in the camp. That God wants us to cover up sin rather than calling it out publicly? I mean, seriously, Zach, shouldn't sin be exposed so that we can be holy and righteous? Exposed so it can be confronted. And if you're thinking this this morning, I understand. I understand why. But let me say what I'm about to say as kindly as I can. If that's your thought, if those are the questions that arise, not only do you not understand grace, but you're a legalist, and you've totally missed the point. Let me close by turning your attention to John chapter 8. When we read of an almost identical situation of what we find here in Genesis chapter 9, John 8 verse 3, we read, then the scribes and Pharisees, the religious establishment, right? They brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in Jesus' midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, the law, commands us that this woman should be stoned to death. But what do you say? This they said, testing Jesus that they might find something of which to accuse him. But Jesus, he stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground, as though he didn't even hear the religious leaders. So they continued, we're told, asking him. So Jesus, get the scene, is in the dirt with this woman who's been laid naked and bare. And he's writing something in the dirt. Oh, to have known what Jesus was writing. A private message just between he and her. And these religious leaders are around. Jesus is ignoring them. So they continued and they persisted. So Jesus raised himself up. And he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. 
And then he went back to the dirt and continued writing on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, so that Jesus was left alone. And the woman was standing in the midst. (coughs) And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, hey, where are those accusers of yours? Has has, Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, and mind you, Jesus was the one without sin who could have cast a stone, but he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now understand, our text makes no excuses that this woman was indeed caught in adultery. Whether she had been set up or acted willingly, she had, without a doubt, committed a serious sin, one that the law demanded she be stoned for. A sin the religious establishment, the do-gooders, was ready to execute her in the public square for. And yet, I want you to notice how incredibly, radically, really revolutionary Jesus is in the way he handles this woman, this adulterous woman. Jesus, everything about the story, right, oozes compassion, doesn't it? Jesus gets into the dirt with the woman and he covers her. You're going to throw stones, they'll have to come through me, Jesus would say. He demonstrates grace. He defends her and he forgives her and he helps her back to her feet, empowering her to go and sin no more. The religious establishment cared only what she had done. Jesus cared who she'd become. Christian, please know, how you handle another person's sin says more about you than anything else. Are you more like the religious moralist, quick to stone another, ironically, in blatant hypocrisy? Or are you more like Jesus? How radically different do you think Jesus would have addressed the Anthony Weiner situation? I think it would have looked radically different. In wrapping it up, you know, I have found that those who think Christians caught in sin must be publicly held to account. That the the consequences have to be severe, and they hold to this position. Why? Because they believe a healthy measure of shame for sin will serve as a deterrent for sin. And yet, if these religious men had stoned this woman, would she have been empowered to get up and go sin no more? No, she would have been dead. So many of our brothers and sisters are dead because we stoned them. Didn't empower them, didn't help them, didn't equip them. We took them out and we stoned them. You see, what enabled this woman to move forward in victory and newness of life was not greater condemnation. It wasn't shame. It wasn't ridicule. What empowered her to move forward was that Jesus was willing to cover her. And in a like manner, both Shem and Japheth were blessed because they understood, unlike Ham, 
that for Noah to move forward from his indiscretion? What did he need more than anything? A good lecture? A rebuking? A stern talking to? A timeout? No, he needed to be reminded that he was righteously covered. He needed to be reminded how God still viewed him. Not in his shame, not in his nakedness, but in his righteousness. And because they were willing to see their father as God saw him, they were therefore able to treat him as God desired. And may that be said of the way that we handle the fallen. The way that we handle the weak, the screw up, the Carlos danger in our tent. Hey, how you treat someone else, it says a lot about you, but it tends to determine how you'll be treated when you mess up as well. May we see people as Jesus sees them so that we can treat them as Jesus would treat them. For there is, friend, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, Lord,